electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Cray America. I do want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you a little money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Something's very wrong here. We've seen so many articles and data points that show there are real cracks in the economy. Hardly a day goes by when we don't hear that higher interest rates are starting to stifle business. In the last 24 hours, I read an article about how vehicles have gotten too expensive and defaults on car loans are rocketing. I've seen pieces about how houses are just way unaffordable. How about how job hopping is no longer an option? Job firing is more like it. Now tech spending, thought to be so vibrant, is beginning to get scrutinized at even the highest level. And I'm not just talking about enterprise software. I'm talking about cybersecurity software. That's like skipping on fire alarms and smoke detectors. And sure, the averages keep getting hit. The Dow lost 175 points today. S&P declined 0.28%, but the Nasdaq did advance 0.06%. But man, this market's just not trading like we're headed for a recession. The stocks aren't saying it, even though the news articles say they are. Everything I just listed is a sign that businesses are pulling back from their spending. They're worried about labor strikes. They're worried about the health consumer. They don't want to invest too much, and they may get hit for a couple more rate hikes and from the Fed anyway. The consumer's not that much better. We heard a downbeat tale from Macy's about the future, even though their numbers were good. It's in keeping with my takeaway from Walmart, which is doing great because people are trading down to their much cheaper store brand. But the people are worried about the market's worried about whether Walmart will have any sales going forward that are anything worth writing home about. Meanwhile, the housing stocks have finally hit a wall as mortgage rates have moved up considerably, while hobble banks scramble to find some credit to give customers. The banks are doing worse than the homebuilders told did report a decent number time. But you can paint a pretty ugly picture here. But if all these issues that we are reading about, if all the data points are real, if we're truly headed into a serious slowdown, why does this market hate the slowdown stocks? The ones where you're supposed to buy when you see the kind of action that we're getting from the news headlines. 
They've been a cascading nightmare, though. Some say it's because many of them are dividend stocks and people want nothing to do with, with them now that bonds can give you better yields. The thing is, that misses the whole point of what's really happening to slow down. The consumer retrenches and goes back to the store to buy goods. She's trying to find ways to make the dollar stretch a little further, especially if she's trying to pay off student loans in for very sweet hiatus. I don't know if we're headed for a slowdown, but I do know it makes sense to dip your toe into the consumer packaged goods stocks, true recession stocks, if only so that you'll have all your bases covered and because they've gotten cheap. Let me tell you about the ones that make the most sense in what has become a bear market for the consumer packaged goods. All right, the two easiest consumer packaged goods stocks to recommend to you right now are PepsiCo and Mondelez. Enter some nice sideways to down action. The stock of PepsiCo is truly unusual. Here's a company that beat the contention estimates 18 consecutive times, gave you one of the biggest forecast boosts, free to lay at terrific 14% organic growth, even the carbonated business business, which I've been giving up on that at double-digit growth. The typical analyst reaction, Webbers took its numbers up big, talking about how Pep could earn $8.09 a per share for 2024. Now, with the stock having sunk from 170 to 175 from 196 even as commodity prices come down, I think PepsiCo's stock has gotten too cheap to ignore. It is a really well-run company. Mondelez may even be better as a stock. It gave you a robust outlook. It raised its organic growth forecast from 10 to 12 percent. Unlike most of the packaged goods group, Mondelez had organic sales growth of nearly 16 percent this past quarter, driven primarily by price increases with flat volumes. The norm for most of these companies has been volume declines as they try to push through even modest price increases, and the consumer has started to just say no at the supermarket. But here you have a more than 15 percent grower on a constant currency basis, meaning after this decline, it sells for 20 times next year's earnings estimates. Remember, if you can get a company, a company like Mondelez, that's growing at 15% for just 20 times next year's earnings estimates, and those earnings are actually accelerating, that's a very positive situation. Mondelez is just terrific here. I don't care what the economy does. Now, there are a lot of anomalies in this consumer package goods group right now. Procter Gamble, for example, saw hair care up high single digits, skin and personal care up low teens, and grooming up 8% as higher pricing stuck while their cost of goods dropped, leading to real nice margin expansion. Procter is one of the better stocks, and it reacted exactly as it should respond in a quarter. It ran from 150 uh, to 158 after spending time in purgatory uh, of the 100, at the 130s and 140s. But now P&G stock's been crushed. I'm beginning to wonder whether it's time to buy the stock back that we sold for the charitable trust at a much higher level. I simply cannot believe how quickly those gains were lost if you stuck around, even as Procter raised its forecast and was getting congratulated by analysts on the call. It's like they never put up that shocking 13% earnings growth number. It's astounding to me how badly that stock acts. You want a real consumer packaged goods company that's just plummeting based on nothing? How about the stock of Hershey? Here's one that is going from $276 to $213 without a peep, although I do like peeps the candy, as the analysts are afraid of trying to, to catch a falling knife. <laughs> Meanwhile, what did Hershey do wrong? Well, they reported a 10 cent earnings beat off, $1.91 basis, 12% growth. They raised their guidance to 11 to 12%. They talked about gross margin improvement in the second half. Hershey's opening five new manufacturing plants just to meet demand, but they didn't raise their forecast for 2024 purely because they prefer to be conservative. Oh, yeah, Hershey had a good quarter that was met with a bad reaction. But if, the, if it reports the same number today with the slowing economy and the stock down 60 bucks from its highs ahead of a good Halloween, I bet there'd be takers. 
Bye, bye, bye. We had quirks on the show recently. It's raw caution going down as prices go up, a heck of a combination. Wall Street thought that, uh, that uh, quirks could do uh, $1.8 billion in sales, but they managed to do slightly more than $2 billion. A remarkable feat for what used to be a bit of a disappointing company, but not anymore. I saw so much like about the Clark's quarter with three of the four reporting segments exceeding sales estimates. The earnings were strong across the board. Gross margins were an astounding 42.7%. And it's only looking for 37%. Wow, this quarter was great. CEO Linda Rendell is turning this place around, and I think the stock's ready to launch. Best of all, thanks to recent decline, you're now getting the latest quarter for free. Highly unusual if we really are in a slowdown. Yeah, I can mention SDC, Constellation Brands, but hasn't really given up enough of its gains to be truly enticing. Here. We own it for the trust. The, Me- the Mexican beers, Medellin, Corona, and Pacific are just too popular. Finally, if you really buy all this bad news about the economy, maybe it pays to buy the worst performing cat- consumer cat news goods, the one nobody wants, like the ones I got, the ones at the 52-week lows, like Campbell Soup, which is breaking down off a uh, kind of an okay quarter, even as it made a strong a stirring purchase of the parent company of Reyes, the great sauce company. Kellogg's been hammered, but uh, they're breaking it up into two, uh, two companies, a snacks company and a cereal company. And at these levels, the stock gives you a nearly 4% yield. Kellogg and Campbell's down so much, they're starting to look up to me. Bottom line, none of these recession stocks work if the economy stays white hot, but they make for good protection in case Jay Powell says something really harsh on Friday that makes us terrified of a slowdown. I like PepsiCo and Mind Release the most. They can be bought right here, although you've got my permission to buy any of the ones I just mentioned because your portfolio at this stage of the game does need the insurance of a slowdown stock. Let's take calls. Let's go to Josh in California. Josh. Hey, Jim. Here's a triple booyah for you. I love a good triple booyah to start the show. What's up? My question is about uh, Southwest Airlines. I own it, and I'm currently in the red, and I've noticed a lot of analyst downgrades in the past past month. So should I buy, sell, or hold the stock at this point? You know what? I don't like the way the stock acts. I don't like how the company's doing. Uh, I think you can hold it, but don't buy any more. I mean, sometimes we own stocks for the trust, and I buy a small position, and I just watch it. And if it's really bad, I just don't buy anymore. I just let it go down. Uh, I shouldn't. I should just sell it. But I, I have uh, a history, unfortunately, of a couple really bad ones, and uh, Southwest is a real bad one. What can I say? Let's go to Dennis in Massachusetts. Dennis. Hey, Jim. I'm great. You got me on. Uh, I'm very interested in your thoughts on uh, the increasing competition in the streaming industry and how it might affect Netflix's uh, market share. Okay, well, all I'm going to do is refer you to the actual calls of Netflix where they talk about the competition and how it do- hasn't really hurt them. And I think that they've been very right. I think Netflix, uh, I'm worried about a writer's strike that goes on forever, but Netflix is a very good company, and I've been in favor of it for a very long time. All right, your portfolio needs the insurance of a slowdown stock, especially if Fed Chief Powell says something really harsh on Friday that makes us terrified of a slowdown. My favorites are PepsiCo and Mondelez. On Man Money Tonight, we are continuing our series on August losers that may be worth looking at by revealing five more beaten down names that I kind of find enticing. You don't want to miss it. Then, as we know, the stock market is pretty much hostage to the power of the bond market. And with the 10-year yield hovering near levels we haven't seen in 16 years, what could that mean for the broader averages? I think we've got to go off the charts to find out. And from the professionals to the at-home handyman, where do home improvements stand as we emerge from the major COVID-induced boom? I'm getting a read on the sector with the fabulous CEO of Lowe's. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. 
Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. You know me, I'm always telling you to wait for a pullback so you can buy your favorite stocks at lower prices. But when the pullback finally arrives, it's so terrifying that not many people really have the guts to pull the trigger. And that's why all week I'm highlighting some of my favorite names among the biggest losers in this month. Biggest losers, and we're sticking with the S&P, by the way, because these stocks are absolutely worth buying in the weakness. They're just too good. Tonight, we'll start with a real estate investment trust. It's called Host Hotel and Resorts. Now, this is the largest uh, large lodging REIT in the world. 72 properties in the U.S., five properties internationally, mostly luxury properties. Stocks down nearly 14% month-to-date, in part because Host uh, Hotels is a dividend stock with 3.8% yield that looks less attractive in a world of higher interest rates. But the company also missed numbers when it reported three weeks ago and slightly trimmed its four-year forecast. Host Hotel said that transient demand was affected by headwinds in San Francisco and Seattle and elevated international outbound travel without a corresponding increase in international inbound travel, which led to lower than expected revenue per average room. So it's not perfect. Not even ideal. But man, come on, Host cut their full-year funds for operations by uh, 2% for forecast, yet stock is now down more than 12% since then. 2% 2% cut, 12% decline. I think that's ridiculously excessive. Stock's now darn cheap, especially considering the strength in travel and leisure. I don't think you can go wrong betting on this one here. Next up is Rockwell Automation. You absolutely know these people. This is the maker of industrial equipment with a stock that's down 13% for the month. These guys reported a seemingly ugly quarter three weeks ago, sending them a stock down 7% immediately. However, we spoke with CEO uh, Blake Murray later that day. And he explained that the numbers were subpar because it took a little longer for them to add capacity at one of their distribution centers. Rockwell Automation actually raised its full year sales for in, in earnings forecast. That's what matters, by the way, not the quarter. Although nobody seemed to care at the time. Now, that's absurd. Rockwell is a major player in the resurgence of domestic manufacturing. To me, the story hasn't changed one bit. The stock's simply gotten even cheaper. I'll get cheap. It, it could get cheaper still, but I like it. Let me give another August loser that could turn to a longer-term winner. And this one's really rankling me because I think I'm surprised it's not up from here. And that's Kramer fave Ralph Lauren. Here's a, the, a, it's one of the rare retailers with a stock that's hanging in there just fine. And then, boom, it reports a great number and it tumbles 14%. 
The problem, when Ralph Lauren reported on the 10th, their quarterly results were excellent. Okay, nice earnings beat. And even if North America was a little soft, that was more than offset by strength in Europe and Asia. Unfortunately, management declined to raise their full-year forecast, and their guidance for the current quarter was a little discouraging. They're talking about sales being flat to up slightly on a constant currency basis. Analysts were expecting more than 3% growth. RL's margin guidance came in light, too. That hurt. But after speaking with the CEO, Patrice LeVay, that night, I feel great about how the company's positioned for the long term. I was thinking about putting it in the bullpen for the CMC Investing Club. Ralph Lauren's winning with younger consumers, and they're also slowly shifting the brand further into the luxury category. That's that purple label for suits, which uh, really has a lot of pricing power. Plus, there were some nuance to the company's full-year forecast that may have been lost on people. See, while Ralph Lauren declined to raise its full-year sales outlook or its operating margin outlook, management did say that they expected more gross margin expansion than they previously guided for. Unfortunately, that's not flowing to the operating margin forecast uh, because Ralph Lauren decided to invest heavily in some longer-term growth initiatives, like, uh, like digital. I think these investors are smart, though, which is why I am not sweating this one. I think it's worth picking up right here. I think it's a steal. The next August loser, more of a, a little bit more of a risk. And I'm talking about Expedia Group. Now, the online travel agency with a stock that's down 11% for the month, well, this one's tougher. Some investors are beginning to fear that the post-COVID travel boom might be getting long in the tooth. I said we heard the same thing a year ago when everyone was terrified of a looming recession. Turns out travel and leisure stayed strong. I think that's going to happen again. Based on Expedia's latest earnings report, business is terrific. They absolutely blew away the earnings estimate. Of course, it wasn't perfect. Expedia said that its Verbo, VRBO, home rental business came in a bit light because travelers were taking shorter trips, generally to urban locations. I disagree with that. I I know this industry very well. I think Verbo is just not doing well. It's just not a good company versus the others. But Expedia as a whole benefits from all kinds of travel. I think the real reason the stock's been selling off is that management doesn't give very specific guidance. They, they, They only say they expect double-digit revenue growth with margin expansion. I'm not worried. Expedia told us pricing's holding up well. They said demand has been stable in North America and Europe while improving in Asia Pacific and Latin America. They also talked about gross uh, bookings growth accelerating year over year in the current quarter from uh, 5% last time to the high single digits. Now, it doesn't hurt the Expedia purchased a remarkable $1.2 billion worth of stock in the first half of the year. That's a pretty huge amount for, one, for a $15 billion company, don't you think? Plus, now that the stock's pulled back 11% this month, it sells for just 12 times earnings estimates? Looks good to me. Way too cheap in a post-COVID world. Finally, let's talk about one that has long been one of my favorites, but there's something wrong with it. It's called Intuitive Surgical, the maker of robot-assisted, minimally invasive surgical machines with a stock that's also down 11% month to date. This is another beaten down stock with a great long-term theme. People getting non-urgent surgery again now that the hospitals aren't packed with COVID patients. And that's why Intuitive Surgical could rally 30% for the year through mid-July. Since then, though, it's down nearly 20%. What happened? All right. First, Intuitive Surgical reported a great quarter on July 20th, but the stock sold off anyway, mainly due to profit taking. There was nothing wrong with that quarter. More recently, I think the stock has struggled because we're getting these powerful new diabetes and weight loss drugs like Ozempic and Mojaro. If people can lose a ton of weight from taking these drugs, fewer of them will need bar- uh, bariatric surgery, for example, which might mean less business for Intuitive. Now, I think that's a legitimate concern. 
uh, if you're thinking out many, many years, that is. But for now, Intuitive Surgical's business is doing great. Plus, you can finally get the stock at a solid discount versus historical valuation. Why not take the chance? That's a highly unusual opportunity for a very high-priced earnings multiple stock. Bottom line, there you go. Five more names that you have got my blessing to buy into weakness after the averages have, have wobbled through the first weeks of August. All throughout the week, we'll be back with more opinions. And i got to tell you something. I really like these stocks. And if I had to buy one of them, I'd buy all of them. Their money's back into the break. Coming up, worries over China can be a T-bill's best friend. But will stocks battle back? The charts tell the tale. Next. You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Never forget that the stock market is often very much hostage to the larger, more powerful bond market. This year's stocks have been roaring, at least until the last few weeks, while longer-term treasury prices have plunged. That's the price of the treasury. And that's normally how it works. They tend to move in opposite directions. However, uh, and this is a big but here, when they reach opposite extremes, they generally have a reversion to the mean situation where they start to converge again. And that's why tonight we're going off the charts with the help of Carly Garner, who brilliant technician, might have seen her on chart week, co-founder of the Carly Trading and author of High Probability Commodity Trading, because she thinks that's where we're headed. According to Garner, the spread between stocks and long-term treasuries has widened to unnatural and unsustainable levels, where we're talking, whether we're talking about price or investor sentiment. If you look at the readings for the consensus bullish sentiment index, nearly 70% of industry insiders they polled were positive on the stock market, while only 30% were bullish on treasuries. Garner thinks that's extreme. So when you look at the monthly chart of the 10-year Treasury note futures in red and the S&P futures in green, Garner says you can see that the markets have strayed from historical norms. Even though plotting stocks and bonds on the same chart is like comparing apples and oranges, it gives you a sense of where the big money's been going. Ever since the Fed pivoted from easy money to relentless rate hikes, longer-term Treasuries have plunged in price and surged in yield, okay? This is plunged in price. Initially, stocks got dragged down, too. But since last fall, they've been rebounding like crazy. In Garner's view, either stocks are too expensive or treasuries are too cheap. Maybe a little of both. Well, look, next chart, check out the monthly chart of the 10-year note futures. This is the price, not the yield, okay? This treasury market is sick, she says. There are plenty of good reasons to allocate money to longer-term bonds, but so far, the short end of the yield curve is getting all of the attention. Remember, this is the 10-year. Originally, the 10-year got hammered by rampant inflation, by soaring U.S. dollar, and the Fed's relentless rate hikes. But these factors have all become a lot less significant than they were 12 months ago. Yet somehow, the 10-year is retesting last year's lows. She's questioning that. 
Garner points out that the markets always feel worse on retest than they did on the original move, especially when the retest comes several months later. I can, I, I can certainly sympathize with that. However, historically, this is how the bond market has worked for decades. In 2006 and 2007, we got a double bottom in the 10-year. That happened over 12 months. 2013-2014, we got a triple bottom that took nine months. In 2018, the 10-year had a double bottom that took nine months. This time, Garner wouldn't be surprised if we get another double bottom within 11 or 12-month span. That would be amazing. That really would be, geez, you know, retest, that'd be very positive. Now, now look at the relative strength index, or RSI, near the bottom, okay? Garner point. this is really an important momentum indicator. Garner points out that even though the 10-year retesting last October, the RSI has recovered from oversold territory. In October, it hit 20 at the bottom. This time, it's sitting near 30, okay? That's very important, uh, which is known as what's it's a bullish divergence, okay? She could see the 10-year futures bottoming at 107, where they sport a, sport a 4.5% yield. So remember, this is where she thinks they, this bottom, okay, 4.5% yield, could be here. We don't know. More important, Garner thinks the 10-year is likely to bottom here because Wall Street just gotten so darn negative. Let's get some more facts on that. Take a look at the 10-year futures with the CFTC's commitments of traders data down at the bottom. Uh, what we care about here is the green line, okay, which shows the net long or short positions of professional money managers. And right now, they're holding the largest net short position in the history, in the history of the 10-year futures note, which is really incredible. Garner expects a larger, uh, expects a large short covering rally or even a longer term trend reversal, similar to what we saw with the S&P futures when they rebounded like crazy earlier this year. Could be very big. But even though she sees the spread between stocks and bonds narrowing, it's not because she's bearish on stocks. It's because she thinks the 10 years due for a major comeback. So remember, what we're looking at here is she thinks that this, remember the 10-year Treasury no futures, she thinks this could go back, that it's down way too much because there's too many people who are negative about it. When you look at the chart of the S&P 500 futures, Garner thinks the path of least resistance here remains higher. Uh, as long as the S&P holds above 4,300, down about 85 points from here. Plus, the Federal Reserve has pulled out all the stops and still hasn't been able to truly slow down the freight train that is the economy, which is good news for the stock market. Remember, if the stock market were somehow, if we started thinking it was going to be a recession, like I said at the top of the show, this would be much lower. Garner points out the seasonal pattern for the S&P is that we usually get a positive run from mid-August to mid-September, then cool off a bit before a habitual year-end rally. If the floor support around 4,300 collapses, she'd get more negative right here. Uh, in that case, she thinks the S&P might plunge all the way to 3,900 or possibly even lower. Mm. However, as long as the floor holds, Garner expects to see the S&P working its way up to 4,715, possibly even retesting its all-time high near 4,800. She thinks this is the path of least resistance, okay? When you look at the weekly chart of the S&P futures paired with the CFT's commitment of traders report, you can see that large speculators are a lot less negative than they were just a couple of months ago. So here, look at large less speculators, and that's in green, and they've come up a little bit, Okay. But while the large net short position in stocks has mostly been unwound at this point, 
Money managers are still net short the market. It's not like Wall Street's collectively turned positive. As Garner sees it, the longer the S&P 500 can hold up, the more likely the remaining shorts start to throw in the towel and cover the positions, which would send us higher still. She's also hearing reports of under-allocation equities in many portfolios, along with accumulation of cash on the sidelines. Well, why not? The sidelines are at 5%. Garner thinks a lot of money managers have simply been waiting for a dip since there's been so much bearish commentary. Maybe they're getting that dip right now. At the very least, she doesn't expect a severe pullback. Some of this weakness has to do with pessimism about China, the second largest economy in the world. Garner actually thinks we're approaching peak Chinese pessimism. Why? All right, look, earlier this year, speculators bull up on commodities like grain and copper, bidding the Chinese yuan higher in anticipation of China's economy finally reopening uh, post-COVID. As it turns out, well, guess what? The China, China merged after the reopening was a shell of its former self. The endless lockdowns did a lot of damage to the economy on top of the already slow-rolling Chinese real estate collapse. As a result, Garner notes that the Chinese reopening trade was unwound, causing both commodities and yuan to weaken. Right now, bearish Chinese sentiment, that's you want. Right now, bearish Chinese sentiment is deafening, right? I mean, I'm, I'm bearish. But when you look at a chart of their currency, she says she likes a lot of what we see from the 10-year Treasury note. I don't know, but this is where she sees. Garner thinks she wants setting up for a capitulation low here, followed by a reversal rally. And stocks in China did run this morning. Bottom line, the charts interpreted by Carly Garner suggest that long-term treasuries are now underpriced relative to stocks over the course of years. The spread between the two assets will likely narrow. That said, she's feeling pretty confident about the SP 500 here, especially if we turn out to be nearing the peak moment of peak pessimism in China. So it'll be the bonds that come up, not the stocks that go down. Let's go to Tony in Florida. Tony. Hey, Jim, first I want to give a big booyah out to the people that work for you, especially Nicole. They are so wonderful. and She is amazing. Them. Philadelphia Zone does a terrific and job. Thank you. We're sure to pass that one on. All right. Oh, definitely. And I want to get a stock from you. It's a wonderful stock, I think. It's go, It's um, a different look. It's going to uh, upgrade their um, stuff, like going after Taco Bell for late night, going after McDonald's for, for the uh, breakfast. What do you think about Wendy's with a five? I think when I think Wendy's is too cheap. I think that yield is good. I like the chairman. I like the CEO. I'm quite surprised that the stock is only at 20. I think the stock could be up 10 percent in a flash. All right. The charges interpreted by Carly Garner show that the spread between stocks and bonds is likely to narrow. But she's also confident about the S&P. So it's likely that the, in, that the bonds will go down in interest and up in price. Much more may have money ahead, including my exclusive with Lowe's. And to see a red for bright uh, retail today, there was a bright spot in Lowe's. Yes, I'm seeing what drove this quarter strength with the company's CEO, who's so terrific. Then 40 years ago, an article caught my attention about the state of tech. It taught me an important lesson that applies to this tape. I'll reveal what it is. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Retail's been a real mixed bag this earnings season, but some stores are doing quite well. Take Lowe's, the home improvement chain. This morning, they reported a solid earnings beat, better than expected same-store sales, thanks to strength in the professional and online businesses. 
This was especially encouraging because last time Lowe's missed numbers and had to lower its full-year forecast. Now they seem to be doing much better. Hence, the stock's nearly 4% rally today. A lot of retailers were bad. So is this story finally back on track? Earlier today, we got a chance to speak with Marvin Ellison. He's the chairman and CEO of Lowe's. Take a look. Marvin, it is fabulous to see you as always. Great to be here, Jim. Now, a lot of people use these phrases. I've been on a million conference calls in my life. They'll have some, you know, this is the special way to do something, our secret sauce. You've got ones that are real. Total home, perpetual product improvement. Are they not what is behind this spectacular quarter? Well, Jim, that's a big piece of it. And look, we're really pleased with the financial performance in the second quarter. As you know, we delivered positive comps in pro and 6.9% comparable sales growth online as we continue to improve the omnichannel experience, which is part of that total home strategy. And Jim, our ability to reduce expense while improving customer service at the same time is a result of great execution from our frontline team and really smart technology investments over the last couple of years. And as we look at the do-it-yourself customer pulling back on discretionary big ticket, you know, we believe that the home improvement market may be down mid-single digits in the second half, but if we execute this total home strategy as we have so far this year, Jim, I think we can outpace the marketplace by 100 to 200 basis points. So I remain really bullish on the mid to long-term outlook for home improvement as an overall market. And with our total home strategy and our focus on improving our merchandising strategy and other elements of our business, we're going to continue to take market share and grow, and we're going to continue to return excess capital to our shareholders. And, and Jim, over the years, we've talked about the importance of taking care of our frontline team. As you know, I started my retail career as an hourly associate. So I'm pleased in the second quarter we awarded our hourly frontline associates with $100 million in discretionary and profit-sharing bonuses. Just a simple way of saying thank you for the hard work and for the commitment in a really tough macro environment. Well, it's incredibly important given the fact that we've seen a lot of turnover, a lot of people trying to go for another job that pays a little bit more, but we see the same people when we go to our lows. Now, another thing that you're emphasizing is localizing. Now, I know as you in your call, you say, listen, you're not looking at what the other guys do. And I like that. That's a John Wooden way to look at things. However, when I see you're ruralizing, I think, you know what? Tractor supplies had this huge market to itself. It's got great margins. You're doing rural. You're doing localizing. And these are really good for gross margins. So, so Jim, you're exactly right. Look, I grew up in a, a town of less than 10,000 people with two stoplights. Uh, and I live 12 miles in the country from the 10,000 people. So <laughs> I understand the rural experience really well. And this is a passion project for me. You know, Bill Bolsch grew up in Montana. And so he and I have spent a lot of time with our teams and getting a line on our rural expansion. You know, as we announced in the call, we have 300 stores that, that we have addressed with a, a new merchandising concept. Uh, we got Petco store within the store concept to drive pet. And, you know, that's a huge part for the rural customer. Uh, we're going to be rolling out Carhartt uh, in some of these stores. And our goal is to give these customers a one-stop shopping experience. We had customers telling us that they have to shop multiple locations to get the home improvement products they needed from us. But if they needed something for their farm and ranch or they needed something that, that was more specific to their livestock or, or pets, they had to go to other places. And we know this is high margin, 
high turn product. And so we're looking forward to improving basket size, share of wallet, and space productivity. And Jim, one of my favorite sayings to the investment community is, we got stores in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, your old hometown, and we got stores in Philadelphia, Mississippi. And that store in Philadelphia, Mississippi is a lot cheaper to run than my stores in Philadelphia, Mississippi, and we love them both. But we right. have the unique ability to, to, to execute both urban and rural and, and do it in a way when the customer walks in, it feels like their hometown store. Well, one of the things that was so great about your call was that you made it clear that you're not in your eighth inning or seventh inning of this stuff. You're very early. And those who think, well, there goes Lowe's, I guess I missed it, I think didn't listen to you. It's obvious you're early. Yeah, Jim, I believe that wholeheartedly. I tell the team all the time that we ought to be excited every day we come to work because we've grown market share, we've increased the market capitalization of the company, uh, we've grown return invested capital operating margin, uh, we've made great investments in supply chain, IT infrastructure, and we're literally in the early innings of, of what I define as a world-class retailer. So I think we have a lot of upside, and I've said it, and I'm on record as saying, I think the next five years for Lowe's is going to be better than the past five years, and the past five years has been pretty doggone good. But, but we feel like that we have a roadmap of specific initiatives, and we're spending over $2 billion of capital every year. Regardless of the macro environment, our balance sheet is so strong that we can continue to invest to improve the supply chain, IT infrastructure, omnichannel, and we are really excited about the future of this company. Well, I think a lot of people now say Milo's. I know I do. I got my Quaker Town Lowe's, but I also have my River Riverhead Lowe's. But, you know, you got the next generation. I told my daughter, who's a baker, I said, look, what you want to do, look at everybody, decide who you want to get your range from your appliances, and then call Lowe's. And I've got to tell you something. She did. She told her exactly what they needed. She was very intimidated. They treated her as if she, they knew she was nervous, and they brought her the product. And I know you got the 6.5% same sales online, which you said is for the pros. But I think the amateurs like it, too. And I think that's a major change for Marvin Ellison. You got the amateurs and the pros buying at the same time. Jim, you just defined the strategy. I mean, we want to make sure that we have a very purposeful strategy around our do-it-yourself customer and that pro customer. And when you talk about appliances, we are number one in market share in appliances, and that's because of great innovation from our suppliers. But also, the last three years, we've been building out a market delivery strategy that can deliver appliances almost anywhere in the country next day. Uh, that is something that we know is a, is a market-leading initiative, in addition to the fact that we spend a lot of time investing in those associates you talked about. We have what we call Lowe's University, and, and we take all of our associates through specific product training. And, and so when I hear stories like you just shared with your daughter calling and getting the product knowledge she needs and being able to walk her through the features and benefits that work best for her, then that tells me that, that we're making really good progress in giving our associates what they need to serve our customers at a very high level. Well, I'm going to leave it right there. It is always just fantastic to talk to you. And I saw the numbers come across. I said, once again, absolutely terrific. I also want to point out the Maui Fire donation is another thing that you did on your own, including beyond the $100 million for the front line. Thank you for the Maui. That was really terrific, Marv. Well, well you know, Jim, we have one store in Maui, but we felt like the devastation was something 
like we had never seen and hopefully will never see again. And our associates on the ground have been working so passionately. We decided as a company to, to donate a million dollars for food, for shelter, for emergency cleanup, in addition to the individuals on the ground that's working there to help the community. So thank you for that, Jim. Uh, I've said it many times before, I believe wholeheartedly, if we take care of the customers with high degrees of service, we give our associates a wonderful place to work, and we make our communities better, that will create sustainable shareholder value. And that's exactly right. I want to thank Marvin Ellison, President and Chairman and CEO of Lowe's. Great quarter, but you know, ever since you got there, it's a work in progress. That's why I know there's so much more ahead. Thank you, Mark. Great to see you. Always good to be with you, Jim. Thank you. Coming up. Kramer wants to hear from you. Your calls on the thunderous lightning round. Next. Okay, it is time. It's time for the lightning round. Okay, that's what I'm We say to the Bob you plan to sell. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski? That's time for the lightning round. Kramer's money. I'm going to start with Brion in Wisconsin. Brion. Hi, Jim Bryan here in Wisconsin. Uh, my question for you is MRO. What's your current feelings on that? I think it's a very inexpensive stock. I think you should buy it here. I don't mind having an independent energy company at any time. Let's, I, I have a couple of them for the Chapel Trust. I like them. Let's go to Sam in Colorado. Sam. Jim, how are you? I am I good. I how are you, Sam? One. I am. I'm all right. I think I got an interesting one for you tonight. Sure. So every now and then, the market gives you an opportunity, and you got to make a decision as to whether or not you're going to buy or you're going to let sit and wait. So my I question is tonight. Question tonight about one of the best companies I think is out there. It's in a really fast-growing industry. It's about to see a ton of money come into it from the Inflation Reduction Act. Talking about Enphase Energy, ticker symbol E N P H. No, Enphase just keeps going down. I mean, what can I say? I think at this price, it does seem very cheap. I don't know. Maybe a buy with calls and not common stock. It is just a, it is just an unmitigated disaster. But that's because it needs financing. Uh, Hey, you need to have financing to use the products, and that's what people don't realize. It's a finance play. Let's go to Bob in Pennsylvania. Bob. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Absolutely. I'm calling today about Coherent, C-O-H-R. Yeah, optical pad. You know, they make up. Op- Look, this is another one of those. Uh, you, you, They have a lot of different semiconductor light uh, components, but they're not making money, and we're just not going to recommend a stock that's not making money. Let's go to Sarah in North Carolina. Sarah. Hi, Jim. Hi, Sarah. How are you? All right, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I would like to ask about IEP. What a mess. Um, I have no idea what it is. I have no idea how it makes its money. I just think it's totally opaque. I say stay away. How about Quentin in Virginia? Quentin. Hey, hey. Booyah. Booyah, what's up? Yeah. Hey, man, this is uh, Quint Caldwell, independent candidate for governor of West Virginia. I have a question. Because of this new BRICS thing that's going on and what's about to go down the pike on November 1st, is this a good time to buy gold? It's all, yeah, I, look, I think gold is an insurance company. It's like asking me, is it a good time to buy car insurance? I always want to own some gold. I think the gold, uh, Barrett Gold is a, is, is a good company. It's not the best lately. It's not run as well as it used to be. The merger has been not that great. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, Kramer spins a stock version of the greatest story ever told. Study up 
then let this all-timer do the work. Next. Every time some segment of tech catches fire, we agonize over the same things. How could these stocks be worth so much money? How can we justify paying up for them? Aren't we just playing the greater fool theory, buying in the expectation that some other dope will come in and take it off our hands at a higher price? You hear it with the run in NVIDIA or Apple's $2.8 trillion, $2. trillion market capitalization or the potential $100 billion valuation of arm holdings. But you know what? I heard all that stuff, same stuff, 40 years ago. And it turned out to be the greatest story ever told. Let me set the scene. Forty-odd years ago, I read a cover story in Money Magazine that really got under my skin. It was some long-since-gone mutual fund manager was saying tech would come back after what had just been a huge sell-off. I remember the moment well. I was in a dentist's office. The magazine was on the table. I picked it up and smiled because I hated tech stocks. Back then, I hated their high price series multiple. It just didn't seem fair to me that there could be two markets, the tech and the non-tech market. I thought it made perfect sense for tech stocks to crash so that they trade like everything else. It made me feel relevant again, having settled into the habit of buying Hines, Kimberly Clark, and Dayton Hudson, the forerunner of the Target. That's where the bargains were. But I was wrong. Dead wrong. Tech student, it just came roaring back out of nowhere. It came back with a vengeance, right back to its premium status where it lorded over the rest of the market. 40 years ago, mutual fund manager was right. It was a tremendous time to buy, not sell. And it was only my limited capacity to not imagine the out years that kept me out of it. I never forgot that thesis. I never forgot that cover story. I found myself mesmerized by tech after that, not just because I brought Goldman, I brought Microsoft to the Goldman Sachs table, courtesy of my friendship with then number two, Microsoft exec Steve Ballmer, although Goldman Sachs proceeded to discipline me because I poached by going outside of the New York area to bring them in. They wouldn't even pay for my plane fare to Seattle. I blew up my eardrum, too. It's all bad. Now, but it couldn't stop me from loving the stock because I believed in tech. When Microsoft came public in March of 1986 at a very expensive price, I bought it for almost every one of my clients in my private wealth management practice. Obviously, they made fortunes because Microsoft in the, in the 80s and 90s was one of the greatest growth stories in history. Expensive all the way, by the way. Fast forward to today. We've got the same dynamic we had 40 years ago. We have tech with a monster price earnings premium and the rest of the market without, without it. See, I was able to find NVIDIA, the current gem of the Magnificent Seven, I call it the Steve McQueen of the group, because of the thoughts put into my head by that 1983 article. I believe in Apple, told you to own it, not trade it, that I gave it the same blessing in NVIDIA. Not that long after I noticed that for a decade, the stock always looked expensive until you look back a year and realize it had been cheap in retrospect. Yes, the true earnings power was that much better than Wall Street expected. That's why I like NVIDIA for the CMC investing club so much and have for a very long time. I saw it as a bargain, not a fanciful plaything for hedge funds because of that 1983 article. So here we are on the eve of NVIDIA's quarterly report. And all I can say is that 40 years ago, I would have thought, fought this kind of tech stock all the way up. I would have fought it. I bought puts on it. I somewhat shorted it. I would have bet against it. But I learned better a long time ago. These days, I just say, let it ride. Tech has a well-deserved premium because of stocks like NVIDIA. Sure, you can sell the stock here. Maybe you'll look like a genius if it sells off tomorrow when it reports. But people doubted Microsoft every step of the way, too. They thought it was ridiculously overvalued and couldn't justify paying up. And that's how they missed one of the best runs in history. I don't want you making that mistake with NVIDIA. NVIDIA, remember, just own it, don't trade it. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you I'll find it for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. 
All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Mad Money Disclaimer. Picture this. You're on a John Deere compact tractor, enjoying the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.